0: My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's good to be with you. If you're visiting us for the first time, I want to, you to know that we're very glad that you are here. We'd love to answer your questions, help you better understand who we are and how we're striving to be a church to call home. Uh, this morning, we're beginning a new sermon series. And over the next several weeks, we're going to be oriented around this question. Right? Who is God calling us to be. And so up front, let me give one qualification. Uh, The things that we touch upon are in no way an exhaustive list. We just thought no one really wanted to sign up for another year-long series. And so while this may not be a complete list, we do think the things that we will hit upon are especially relevant to our times, given to the state of things around us All right there 's so much swirling around us, whether it 's division or hostility or distrust, that it 's easy to get caught in those winds and find your and find ourselves drifting from who God has called his people to be. Right, we want god 's word to be our trajectory and nothing else you know when I was When I was younger and and playing quite a bit of golf, I was, I'll confess, I was always having to work on my temper, which is a very hard thing to do when you're of mediocre talent and have unrealistic expectations. Right, I would stand on the first tee and I would tell myself, Brian, today is the day that you're gonna get your temper under control. And then I'd stand on the second tee and I tell myself that tomorrow would be that day. (laughs) More likely, it was actually probably the first green where that realization came in, right? The problem was that I was focused on my temper, right? Not my temper meant, right? I thought the solution was to keep my anger in check, but what I needed most of all was a complete and fundamental change, right? My disposition, my temperament needed to be transformed by the grace of God. So during the sermon series remember we're not we are not talking about behavioral modifications. We're talking about the deep down change that comes through the gospel. Right through trusting in Jesus Christ. Everything that we're going to talk about is downstream from the gospel, right? And if we forget that, well, we're in the business of standing on the first tee, thinking that it's somehow and our power to change, right? But our need is far greater and can only be answered by a power none of us possess. So on that note, our lesson this morning comes from the gospel of Luke, chapter 18, verses nine through 14, where we're going to learn about what it means to be called, to be a humble people. So you can follow along in your Bible or up here on the screen. Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray One, a Pharisee, and the other, a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, Would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The grass withers and the flower fades. So this Pharisee is what theologians would call a jerk. It's actually not a technical term, so don't write that down. But it's easy to draw that conclusion, isn't it? We read, we hear this familiar parable, and we catch ourselves thinking, boy, I'm glad I'm not like him. I mean, I'll admit it, I've got my faults, but that guy is a real mess. But when we go there, doesn't that prove that we're just like him? See, verse 9 tells us exactly who Jesus delivered this parable to. Those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. In other words, Jesus told the parable to people who had a deep confidence that their lives were approved by God, that their lives were upright and pleasing in his eyes. And what that means is that Jesus delivered these words to religiously-minded people, like people who took the law of God seriously, like people who wanted to live differently than the non-religious, non-serious people around them. And is that really such a a bad thing? Well, of course not. But here's the downfall to religious people. And they're striving to honor God in their living. Mercy quickly falls out of their vocabulary. They look at mercy like a professional cyclist would look at training wheels. It's something for those who haven't mastered the craft. And that's why those who trust in themselves that they are righteous inevitably treat others with contempt or disdain. The person who's self-assured that they've garnered God's approval on their merits can't help but see all the other ways that people are falling short. What happens is that the religious person is always looking over his shoulder, to see how far behind others are lagging. What that means is that their eyes aren't set on God. So they aren't seeing how far short they fall of God's perfect standard. You see, the fault is not in God's law. Paul tells us that the law is holy. The The commandment is holy and just and good. The problem is in our self perception, the way that we evaluate and measure ourselves. And the same is true for a non religious person, right? The person who isn't all that concerned about living an honorable and upright life before God. See, just like the religious person, God's mercy isn't on their radar. They, too, feel no need for it. They have this confidence, this assurance that they can steer their lives just fine without an intervening mercy from above. And so they, too, will inevitably treat others with contempt. You see, the deep irony is that both religious and non-religious people have the same downfall. Their pride keeps them from crying out for mercy. And so both religious and non-religious people will inevitably end up stumbling over their pride. And this parable, this parable is about the only way that we can avoid that downfall. What Jesus gives us here is the only path to being exalted, to receiving God's approval to being justified in his eyes. So the parable opens with the strongest of contrast. We're introduced to a Pharisee and tax collector making their way to the temple for a time of corporate worship. There are about 27 references to the Pharisees in Luke's gospel. And they primarily serve as Jesus's cross examiners They're always there to ask him and pepper him with questions. And there was obviously some familiarity between Jesus and the Pharisees because on several occasions, Jesus was invited to dine in the home of a Pharisee. But on all those occasions and many others, the Pharisees watched Jesus very closely to see if he would violate what they understood the law to command. The Pharisees were a group widely known for their meticulous attention to God's law, right? They were known to go above and beyond what the law commanded, right? And that attention to the law, their effort to bend their lives into the the strictest conformity to the law separated them from everyone else. And that's what Pharisee means. It means a separated one. And so it makes sense that this Pharisee, this separated one, would stand by himself in the temple. You notice, before we hear a word out of his mouth, we can pick up on the fact that this man thinks that he's quite unlike all other people. And when he does open his mouth and Begin to pray. Notice, notice where his eyes go. Right? His eyes aren't lifted up to heaven. Instead, his eyes are fixed on other people. Right? His prayer is 29 words in the Greek. As one commentator points out, prominent among those 29 words are five first-person verbs. And we have no reason to believe that Jesus would have this man lying about what sins he hadn't committed and his religious practices of fasting twice a week and tithing of all that he gets. But what this man is doing is he's using the law to compare himself to those around him. In other words, how his neighbor is doing relative to the law, Is doing relative to the law is functionally his measuring stick. That's where he goes to evaluate himself. And so he wrongly concludes that because others have broken the law in ways that he hasn't, that somehow means he's upright before God. It would be as if I watch a documentary on like Bernie Madoff, and I come away thinking, boy. I'm glad that I've never broken the 10th commandment against coveting. But we're prone to do this, aren't we? The person on TV, the person down the street or in our office becomes the standard by which we assess our morality. We look at someone whose sins are more conspicuous than ours and think that their vices somehow put us in a better place with God. But it does us no good. It does us no good to be slightly more meticulous and observant than our neighbors. Because it is God. Not anyone else who is the sole unchangeable standard of what is good and honorable. We gain no true understanding of ourselves by looking across the spectrum of humanity. We can only rightly see ourselves by comparing ourselves to a holy God. Right, and like this Pharisee, you might surpass many when it comes to religious observance. But friends, what good is that when you must stand alone before the judgment seat of Christ? The point here is that we cannot relate to God. We cannot find God's approval through the sins of other people. Right? We can't stand on those sins and somehow reach God. And that's what this man was attempting to do. He was exalting himself by bringing up the sins of people like this tax collector. And the sins of tax collectors would have been widely known in Jesus' day. They were pariahs. They were outcasts. Rome's system of taxation relied on these men to collect the taxes throughout the empire. But the whole occupation was open to abuse and extortion. What would happen is that these collectors would extort and collect more than Rome Levied so that they could pocket the excess. And Rome understood that in order to avoid being deceived and falling short of collecting the needed revenue, Rome needed to recruit collectors from the native population, right, who had a first-hand knowledge of the local economy. And so this tax collector would have been known as a traitor to his people who sold out to Rome for money. And yet everything about his posture and prayer in the temple is different. He stands far off, not as a sign of superiority, but of humility. He doesn't look around to see if perhaps maybe there are some more notorious sinners in the temple that day. He beats his chest. And offers this prayer of six simple words. God, be merciful to me. And it's actually the sinner. God, be merciful to me. The sinner. And what gets lost in translation is exactly what this man is asking for. When he asks for mercy, you don't know exactly what he's Asking God for. Right? There's actually more to this request than meets our ears. You see, the word that's translated merciful comes from the Greek word halaskami. All right, It's a word that means to propitiate, to assuage, to appease. And actually, this same word is used in Hebrews 2:17. There we're told that Christ. Had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest to make propitiation for the sins of the people. You see, in Jesus' day, atonement, propitiation, was notoriously difficult for tax collectors. Their sins seemed to separate them from everyone else. What that means is that this tax collector came to the temple that day looking for a substitute. He came looking for a better sacrifice that could satisfy the wrath of God against his sins. He was asking God to offer a sacrifice beyond anything that the priest in the temple could make. You know, what he understood As a money hungry traitor to his people, is that the only way for him to find God's favor was for God's disfavor to fall on someone else? J.I. Packer, in his book Knowing God, put it like this Our sins have been punished, the wheel of retribution has turned. Judgment has been inflicted for our ungodliness, but on Jesus, the Lamb of God, standing in our place. See, in the ancient world, all across the Greco-Roman world, humans try to appease and propitiate the gods to try and earn or curry God's favor. And what the gospel shows us is that God is the one who makes the sacrifice to appease his wrath against our sins. That it's his work and it flows from his free grace and love. And yet, as Sinclair Ferguson points out, our greatest temptation and mistake is to try to smuggle character into God's work of grace. You see, the Pharisee wanted to bring his character into the temple that day. He wanted others to know what he hadn't done and what he was doing. He wanted others to know how unlike he was from them. But the tax collector brought nothing into the temple except a desperate plea for God to intervene. For God to intervene and save him from all that he had and hadn't done. And you notice the Pharisee and all 29 words of that prayer didn't ask God for a thing. He made no request But this tax collector made the one request that allowed him to go home justified, assured of God's approval. You know, we can all try to smuggle one thing or the other into our relationship with God. We want to bring our years of devotion, our improvement, our giving, our service and even our neighbor's sins. We think the more that we do, the more favor we have or the more that someone else's sin, the more favor we have. Friends, we have God's favor for one reason only. Jesus became like us in every way to be our merciful and faithful high priest to make propitiation for our sins. See, being rightly related to God now and stretching into all eternity depends entirely on Jesus Christ. Your character has nothing to do with it. And because of Christ, you don't fall in and out of favor with God. At the moment you trust in Christ alone, you'll never be more acceptable before God. You'll never lack in God's approval and favor. This is what Paul means when he says that Christ became to us on our behalf, wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. You see, that's the one bit of antivenom that can kill the poison that is pride. You see, the only way we can walk on the path of humility is through Christ, right? We are only going to be a humble people as long as we take our eyes off ourselves, off our neighbor, and we set them on Christ who came and stood in our place. As one pastor noted in a sermon I listened to recently, if you look at it, Christ's life, here is one man who had every reason, had every reason and all the power in the universe to exalt himself. But when you look upon the one man who is truly unlike all people, what do you see? You see the Lord and King of the universe humbling himself and becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, our pride can only be healed by the humility of our Savior. And right? it makes sense then that the only way to God it's through this humble spirit. And yet pride is such a subtle thing. Right? No one wakes up and says, today I'm going to become more prideful. Right? We all recognize that it's obnoxious. We easily detect it in other people. And yet on our own, we can't keep it at bay. Right? Pride is that thing that is always going to sneak into our hearts, and it is so very good at hiding itself. You see, pride is where you always end up without Christ. You see, the truly humble person, a truly humble person isn't someone who's always thinking the worst thoughts about Himself. The truly humble person, the truly humble person is the person who thinks constantly about Christ and his mercy. So the only way that we grow in humility is we become self forgetful people. We become people who remember Christ more and more every day. And so as you head home this morning, whose path are you following? The one who exalted himself or the one who humbled himself? And remember, the road to humility, it begins with us Bringing nothing to God except this one desperate request God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Let us pray. <clears throat> Father, how good it is that when we do offer that prayer, it is not in vain we know that while we were still sinners Christ died for us we ask that that good news would begin to transform our hearts the way that we see ourselves and other people we know that pride is a subtle thing it's hard for us to resist And so we pray that by your grace and by the power of your spirit, that you would help us put to death our pride, that we would be transformed more and more into the image of our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.